Philippians chapter 12, excuse me, 2, verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have all, always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who is in you at work, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourself to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as light in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Uh, we have uh, kind of titled this passage that we have just read in this section, uh, Obedience versus Grumbling and Disputing. And uh, last week we really looked at verses 12 and 13 and what it really means to work out your salvation with fear and trembling in relationship to God who is working in you for his good pleasure. And we tried to explain to you that this working out of salvation is not something having to do with good works. Uh, the, the preposition here, it says uh, essentially that, that, that this particular working is from inside of you because you already have salvation. Okay? It's not, it's working out of you. It's not working for salvation. Okay? And so there's not a reaching for salvation. I have to do this, this, and this, and this to get it. It's already inside of me. And I'm working that out on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of my sanctification. And we explain the past, the present, and the future concept of salvation that's in the Word of God. So you can't always just take the word salvation and apply it in certain ways. You have to look at its context. And in this context, it's talking about basically sanctifying your life, growing each day as God saves you in relationship to your sin. And God is inside of us basically to do this, to cause his good pleasure to work into your life. And that's essentially what God is at. He is there to will it. He is there to accomplish it within you. You are to agree with that in obedience. And obedience becomes the key here. This is what the passage is about. Because the previous passage is using Jesus as an example of obedience and humility in relationship to the purposes of God. That he gave his life in obedience to even death. And that we are also to follow that same example. And so this is what Paul says now. So then, okay, in verse 12, you do the same. You give yourself to obedience in relationship to the plan God has for you and your life. Now, you do that, as it says in verse 14, without grumbling or disputing. Okay? Obedience is the opposite of grumbling and disputing. And so that's essentially the play that's going on here. Once this occurs in your life, once this occurs in your life, you will become a light. You'll become a light. 
and this perverse generation. Because there's so few people who don't grumble and dispute. There's so few people who can live life as a light in relationship to this obedience to God. It really shines out. And what you do then is begin to hold the word of life out to people around you, all around you. And that becomes something that's a salvation to them and causes them to move towards God. And of course, as you see in, in this passage, he, he then goes exactly like the other passage just finished. Jesus was obedient. He chose obedience. He gave his heart to obedience. And what did God do? What will God do? He will glorify him. And Paul ends on that note for us. If we follow the same example, we will receive the joy of all that we have done here upon this earth. And we will be glorified. We will be burnt offerings that are essentially fellowship offerings that we're going to talk about. And we will be an offering to God that will be pleasing. And we will be in fellowship with him. And he will glory over us in terms of what it is that we accomplish on this earth. And that becomes a great joy to him and a great joy to us. That's exactly how he ends the previous verse in verse 11 with Jesus. Jesus will be glorified because of his obedience. We will be glorified. We will bring things to God in terms of his joy and the glory that we provide for him through our own lives only because of our deciding to be obedient and not to grumble and dispute. So that's, that's the, the, the movement of the whole passage, okay, in relationship to what's going on. Now, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know where you are, but everywhere I turn around lately, uh, things are not going real well. And uh, there is within our own hearts, as we move along with our walk with God, there is certainly a wilderness. There's certainly a, a time that becomes a part of people's lives that, that are great struggles. And as you look in front of you, as you look in front of you, as God asks you to take a cup that perhaps is very difficult for you to take, or if you look right at the present circumstances that you're going through, there is a sense that you wish things were going differently. Okay? that you wish that the will of God or the plan of God or whatever God is planning to do in this particular given situation, including the bad, okay, or, you know, whatever. And, you know, in other words, there is a sense inside of us always as though the plan of God is not right. Now, I'm not sure if I'm connecting, but that's my problem, Okay. I think some people have come to more of a conclusion of this. In other words, they've been able to put this to rest. Okay, But even Jesus himself struggled with the very plan that he and the Father had created. And so it's a real comfort to me to know that you, know, you can struggle with it, but you have to be very careful about the grumbling and the disputing, the two words that are used here. These words are direct words that are pulled out of passages from the Old Testament that had to do with the people of God walking in the wilderness. So the minute he uses these words, every Jew knows what's, what he's talking about. It's been talked about over and over and over and over in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, and all sorts of different places where you can go to study the passage. We're not going to spend a great deal of time going back and looking at that. 
in terms of the Old Testament references. But what you're, what you're seeing are two attitudes, grumbling and disputing. Grumbling is essentially you are, you are not pleased with what God is doing. That, that's grumbling. It's an attitude of dis, uh, unrest inside of your own heart. You're not at peace. You don't like the way it's working. Okay? And inside, you're not sure if what he is doing is going to satisfy your life. Okay? If you look at, at the Old Testament people, that's what their big problem was. They walked into the wilderness, and what they found was is that they were rejoicing that they were free. But when it, the minute they got into the wilderness and started walking with God, what they found is, is that he seemed to be not supplying what they thought were their needs. And they had defined the needs. And they also defined the way the supply should be given. Okay? For instance, this is a big topic. Almost every time I open up a prayer session, for people, in other words, like we just did, and I and I pray with my students every single day, three classes a day. In other words, where I have I teach Bible three times a day, and I have a devotion, and I open it up for prayer. Do you know that almost invariably, almost all the prayers are for somebody else, and they're almost always in relationship to sickness, in terms of what's going on in relationship to sickness which seems to be a great deal a part of our lives, either, either us personally or somebody that's close to us. And yet, I find that we really as a group, as Christians, really don't know how to pray very well, even though this is the biggest area we pray for in terms of sickness. And, I, and, and most of our prayers have to do with direct healing. In other words, when, when we pray, we ask that God heal somebody. That's essentially how we pray. We have a need, we have a desire, we have a want, and the way we believe that God should take care of that is to heal us, or to heal this person. That's not the way a person should pray. Okay? Now, it's not that you shouldn't ask for healing. Okay, that is not something that you shouldn't ask for. But the primary function of prayer is to cause your heart to come in obedience to the will of God for your life. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in heaven as it is in earth. Excuse me, in heaven, and it should be done here on earth the same way. So when a man comes before God in almost any prayer, what is he doing but searching for his own soul to be committed to the will of God? That's exactly what Jesus did in the Gethsemane. Okay? This is a tough thing for us to go through. This is a tough thing for me to go through. Is there any other way to go through? My soul is in anguish about the prospect of us separating. Is there any other way? But, Whatever your will be, I will follow. And so those are things that are very, very, very difficult to pray. 
for instance, and my father-in-law who has who had cancer, still has cancer, <clears throat> but is kind of in a remission. And when he was dealing with this cancer, he thought it was in his esophagus. And that's one of the more difficult cancers to die with. And he literally couldn't face it. In other words, that cup was something that if he had to go through, would be very, very difficult for him to go through. So he could not pray. He had a very difficult time praying, I will be done in this. What he wanted was healing. And so the prayer would have been for healing, but not for the will of God. Now, over a period of two years, my father-in-law has come to rest with whatever God wants to do in relationship to this. And he now says, I will be done. And in truth, that is essentially where God wants a man to get. That's not an easy place to get. And so you grumble. And the next thing you do is that you dispute. That means you argue. Okay, grumbling is kind of under your breath. Okay, a dissatisfaction with what it is that God has laid out or is laying out on a day-to-day -day basis. The next thing is, as, as this plan begins to unfold to you, you actually argue about the plan. You get, you get mad about the plan. Okay? Now, I, I don't know if you've run across this or not in your own life, but also other people, as you pray and you ask God to do something, all of a sudden, he begins to do something. And as he begins to do something, you go, I don't like this. This isn't the way I wanted it to go. This isn't the way I thought it should be. I, I could have thought a better plan than this. You know? This, this is not working at all. It's getting worse. Are you really God, or are you not really God? All of a sudden, your very faith begins to come into play. Okay? The word dispute really has a context of beginning to lose your own faith. Okay, grumbling is just a dissatisfaction as the way the things are moving and whatever. The disputing is now you're looking straight at God and questioning his justice, his goodness, and his love. And what you're really doing is breaking down in relationship to your faith. Because now you're basically saying, you are a God of love, but I don't agree. This is, this is, this is not love. You're a God of justice. I don't agree. You know, let me show you how I don't agree. This, this is not working. This is not working. And surely that wasn't just, you know, it's like putting out a, a case before a jury. Okay? In relationship to what's going on. So this is essentially what you find in this particular case. And he's saying, if you're not obedient, if you don't understand what obedience is, if you do not behave as Christ himself behaved, and giving himself as a bondservant to the will of God while he's upon the face of this earth, what you will find yourself losing is that you will no longer be a light and you'll bring very little glory or joy to God at the end. Not that you won't be saved, okay? but a great deal of your function here upon this earth has been lost. 
That's essentially what's being said here. On the opposite side, if you are obedient, the great function of your life will find itself moving towards its completion, which is the glory and the joy to the Father and to yourself. And so this has to do with literally our day-to-day activity, our our day-to-day attitude, our day-to-day function in this area. And it's a very, very difficult area. It's not, it, it, you, you will find yourself falling into grumbling and disputing too, way too often. Okay? And exactly like Lillian is saying, this particular verse in the word blameless and innocence, in verse 15, okay, that you may prove yourself to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, what this basically is referring to is people who look at your life. Okay, the word blameless and innocent. What, what the word blameless actually means in relationship to this passage is that you took care not to have a bad attitude. You're blameless about bad attitudes. You're blameless because you didn't grumble or dispute. Nobody can hold you accountable in relationship to the attitude of being a disputer or a grumbler before God. That's what it means. Okay? And how many times, or what do you think people perceive in relationship to our lives? Do they see us as grumblers and disputers? I I don't think people see us as disputers very often. Though, Though I think that that certainly can be very, very much apparent. In other words, I see it very often in teenagers. Okay? They're disputing the, the rightness of God's way. Okay? I had three girls that met with me last week, and, and they're just about to walk out the door, of course, the seniors, and they're, they're as a whole, they're very, you know, as best I can understand from their life, they hold out that they are Christians and that they love the Lord. But deep inside of their soul, they're disputing, is God's way the right way? They're, they're wondering if that's true. And as they speak, as they talk about particular issues in class, you can see this coming through. It's not, you know, blunt attack. There are very few people who are Christians who are going to take their finger at God and point right in his face and say, you're a liar. Okay? You, you don't love. This is not love. This isn't good. And I'm calling you on it. Most of us are not that brazen. Okay? In relationship. But we will grumble. <laughs> you know? And we will dispute. In terms of what's going on. And what he is saying is, if you're obedient, you'll get this under control. Okay? If you're obedient to what God has called you to be and what he is, this will not be an attitude that's a part of your life. This is not an attitude that will be a part of your life. And you'll have to just look at your own lives and see if you're grumblers or disputers in terms of what's going on. Am I? And what he is pointing out is, is that that particular attitude, if it is seen by other people or perceived by other people, 
is you lose your light. You lose your light. You're no longer a light in a perverse generation. You actually lose your position in terms of people. But when you, when you, they see you as a Christian, what you find yourself becoming is just like them. You're a grumbler and disputer in terms of what's going on in life. You're a sourpuss. You know? You're basically a person who, you know, doesn't really have any sense of what joy or life is. passage, it doesn't, by the way, innocent means that you have purged yourself of this problem. That's what innocent means. <laughs> You're blameless. Nobody can hold you account because they, they listen to your conversation. Innocent means you have purged yourself of this problem. Okay. Now, it does not tell us in this passage how to purge yourself. It doesn't tell you how not to be this way. So let me give you a few quick clues, real quick, because we want to continue down the road here. Because it's not in this passage. You'd have to go to other particular passages. We are going to go to one passage in Hebrews chapter 3, where it talks about a person, I mean, it talks about the people who were like this in the wilderness. And it, and it warns some of the things that you can do here. So we are going to look at that passage. But... But I, I am a, I am this kind of person. If you happen to be a melancholy person, which I am, okay, you tend towards this. In my experience, as I was growing as a Christian, when I was 17 years old, I broke from God and I broke on this problem. I, I did not see his love or goodness. And I, and I just put my hand right in his face and called him a liar and walked out, okay? So I'm very, very much aware of this particular situation. And what it basically does, and then I came back when I was 27, so it was 10 years. And when I came back and, and started following the Lord and walking with it, it took me another 10 years to really get under underneath my belt to some degree. In other words, I know the principles, and, it's, and it has provided an enormous amount of change in my life, but it's something that I still fight with and work with all the time, just grumbling and disputing, okay? One of the major principles that this particular attitude is generated, in other words, what generates this attitude? The thing that generates this attitude is James chapter 1, okay? James chapter 1. It's doubting, okay? 
Now, there are a lot of other things that cause this to be generated, but one of the biggest things is, is that you doubt, okay, the character and the plan of God. You just doubt it, which is the thing that causes the dispute and the grumbling. So inside of your own mind, as the plan is unfolded in your own mind, you go, I can't, I can't follow this. This is, this isn't good. And then you start asking about the very character of God himself as it's good. Now that, that was my problem. Okay? Now, I call this doubt. Everybody uses the word doubt. And if you ask anybody who uses the word doubt, they don't consider doubt all that bad. I mean, doubt is just a problem that humanity has. I mean, we don't have everything, you know, and, and so we doubt. Okay? I have found and my own walk and study of the Word of God, is that 95% of doubt is direct sin and has to be accepted as sin. The other 5% has to do with issues to where you don't understand in terms of the content. In other words, it's a mystery to you. And so that, that doubt is essentially, I just can't see you know, what's going on here in terms of what's going on. So you ask God to help you see. Okay? That's legitimate. But the rest of it is not. What you find is, is doubt, is a, if we studied this already before, the word doubt means double. And what you're doing is holding two ideas at the same time. One is, is that you don't believe in God and that this plan isn't any good. And the things that are not going right, it's not loving, it's not just, it's not good. The other side is, is you really do try to believe that. But they're completely at war at each other all the time. That's what the word doubt means. It's a double, and you're like a wave tossed to and fro, back and forth. You cannot solve the issue. The issue is obedience, where you basically say, forgive me, I have called you into question. That's the essence of how to handle this particular problem of this scruntle dispute. When this comes up in your mind, and when this comes out of your mouth, and this unrest and this settle, you know, or even a direct attack, okay, when that occurs, it's literally sin and has to be repented of. You would be surprised how often you do not repent of it. The grumbling part particularly. You don't, you don't consider it a sin. And so you just grumble your way through until finally this is over, and then you come out okay, you know, and, and you, you're, you and God are walking okay well with you. But you miss the whole practice. You miss the whole thing. You don't know what's going on, and you're mad at him most of the time. And you just plain flat do not call that a sin. And so essentially a man, when he begins to grumble, He's got to understand that he's moving to an unbelieving heart that is hardened against God. That's what Hebrews 3 says. And God says, when you hear my voice today speak to you, you better move. You better move. In other words, you better come to me and repent. Because if you don't, this action of sin will cause you to become hardened against me. And you will begin to have an unbelieving heart. You're saved, but you still have a walk with God that is essentially being, the light is going out. It's not going to be completely gone, 
but it's going to be so diminished that your life is not, you're not certainly going to be blameless or innocent in this. Okay. Okay. This is my mother, if you don't know. Some of you. <laughs>
you know, as to what I can, what I will do, or what's going to happen to me, or what's going to, you know, what's going to be in the last day, and how am I going to, how am I going to deal with that? How, how am I going to do that well? Okay, and what I have to trust, of course, then is God's plan and His goodness, and that He will be there. And of course, if I start wavering in that and causing myself to start doubting, okay, that this is good and that he will be there, now I'm sinning, okay? So the fear is legitimate, okay? It is overcome by faith in terms of what's going on. But if you allow the fear to work, you become a disgruntler and disputer and a person who now is sinning, okay? So you call upon God and you call upon him to will and to do of his good pleasure in your life. So it's a complete, constant submitting to the obedience of God. I mean, to the plan of God and obedience. That's exactly what Jesus said. That's what we are called to do as well. In these very definite areas that are our struggles for us, everybody in this room, it's a struggle. It's not something that is simple, but it is the working out of our faith. It is the genuineness of who we are. It is the genuineness of taking the word of life and holding it to ourselves and causing to live in such a manner that we now become a light in a world that can see it. And it's on this level that a person sees it. Your children see it, your, your husband and your wife see it, and the rest of the world sees it. Okay? In terms of what's going on. So it's a huge call. The last verses I want to finish up on this, 17 and 18, Paul speaks of this in, in verse 16 of his glory. In other words, his own obedience and their obedience to this particular call of not being disgruntled or uh, disputing. Okay? And he calls it his glory. What they do is, of course, his ministry, his ministry to them and then his own life. And what he says to them is, I know that you're achieving this. He, he, are, he already thanks them for that. He knows that that's occurring in their lives, that they have made this decision to be obedient. He's telling them, if I die, which is a good chance, I want you to continue to do this even though I'm not here. Okay, so he, he explains that in this passage. I'm not going to be here as a leader for you to see these things and to encourage you, but I, but I am calling you to do these things now and continue to do them. Okay? So, he then goes on in a very beautiful passage. He says, verse 17, I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and the service of your faith. One of the things that our lives are built to do is to carry this light and this word of life and this attitude of not grumbling into the lives of the people that surround us. They become our glory. They become what our life is really about. When we die, if their lives had caught that and have been influenced by that, okay, it is what we take with us. We take nothing else. It becomes our glory. And what he basically says is, is your sacrifice as a burnt offering, and by the way, this is what is called a peace offering in the Old Testament. It's the only place 
the only place in the Old Testament when the Jew came before the Father that he did not sacrifice the burnt offering. There's lots of burnt offerings, but the one burnt offering that's being talked about here is called the peace offering. And this is where they came and sacrificed the lamb or they sacrificed a bull or whatever. It was meat. And they had a meal. They actually had a meal. It was called the fellowship offering. It was a meal between them and God. And they were doing it for one purpose, was to, to thank him for all that he had done for them. And Paul basically says, you are my glory. You are those who have chosen to fellowship with him, to be with him, to bring thanks to him. And when you come and present your life before God himself, you will become my glory. And by the way, he says, I will take a drink offering, and this is the only place that this is used, where you take the drink offering, a cup of wine, and you pour it over the meat. So there were two deals that were going on. And, Paul, and that is an additional praise and thanks for what it is these people have done. So Paul is saying, I am essentially pouring my life on your life, as you have made decisions to fellowship with God and hold this light, and you become my glory. And I thank God for it. Okay. And you and I will be in great joy, that's the next word, and we will rejoice together. And I will share your joy, and you will share my joy as we stand before the Father. Because we have decided to obey and to produce this light. So it's a very, very beautiful connected passage as it reaches back to the other passage because that's, uh, as Jesus is glorified, so we will be glorified. Okay, the both of them end in that manner. Okay? All right, we'll see you next week.